Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to take a little break from our exposition of the Gospel of Luke to go back to the birth narratives in the Gospel of Matthew. And so we'll be in Matthew for these next few weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas Day. So please uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. Matthew 1, begin reading with me at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, we as your children are delighted to gather on this day in your name to ascribe to you the glory and praise and adoration that you alone deserve, for you alone are worthy. Father, as we come to this familiar story, as we reflect again on the wonders of the Incarnation, Help us to see and understand how your grace, your compassion, your mercy is revealed fully in the coming of your Son to walk among us, to fulfill all righteousness, to die on the cross in our place, to rise from the grave so that we may know redemption. Guide us in your truth now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin this morning, I'd like to ask you all to use your sanctified imagination with me just for a moment. Imagine that you have been raised in a time and in a culture where you were never exposed to the Bible. Never exposed to the truth of Scripture, never exposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of these things are completely unfamiliar to you. And yet, you have in your heart this sense that there is a God. Now imagine this scenario with me. There is a sovereign God who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, And out of the overflow of the love inherent to his triune nature, he created humanity in his own image, giving them life and breath and everything good. 
But rather than loving Him and worshiping Him, these image bearers chose to live in open defiance of His rule and in indifference to His person. How do you think such a God would deal with these sinners? Would He abandon them? Would He judge and condemn them? Would He command them to work hard at keeping His laws in order to earn back His love? Would he, over their, would he overlook their rebellion if they tried to live good moral lives? What would this God do? Again, brothers and sisters, if we were a people who had never been exposed to Scripture, who had never heard the Gospel, who were thinking purely in human terms, the last thing we would ever think of is the truth. The last thing we would ever think is that this sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God, that this God would take on the frailties of human flesh to fulfill His own righteous requirements for us, to bear God's wrath in our place, to die the death that we deserve, and to rise again for our justification. We would never think that, right? And oftentimes, as I had one of these conversations just a little over a year ago, you know, sometimes if we really go to the Word of God, we can struggle and, and think that God is a harsh God, that God is somehow an unloving God, that God is sometimes, sometimes a tyrant in the ways that he, he orders the execution of entire peoples in the ways that He causes, calls us to, to enforce his, his matters of justice in this world. Even when we think of a God who would send sinners to hell, that can lead people to question Him in some way, to think that God is somehow a capricious God. But you know what? The truth of the incarnation proves that that is not the case. Because a capricious God an angry God, a tyrannical God would never take on the frailties of human flesh to die in the place of those who deserve only His condemnation. The incarnation, the life and the ministry of Christ, His work of redemption is the greatest proof of His loving character is it not, brothers and sisters? And the wonderful truth is that this divine Savior didn't just demonstrate His perfect love for His people through His death and resurrection. He lavishes His love upon us daily, serving and strengthening us in His mercy and grace every single moment. He is not just a God who has come among us. He is a God who remains near. We return to the Gospel of Matthew this Christmas season to where it all began. The covenant of redemption planned in eternity past between Father and Son as to how to redeem sinful mankind. That covenant of redemption dawned in creation at this time in history. When Israel was under the boot of Rome and Herod the Great ruled God's people with an iron fist, the incarnation of our Lord came in what was really a time of hopelessness. 
through some of the most unlikely means imaginable. Through a carpenter and a young girl who were simply obedient to the Lord. We're going to look through this text this morning and a few points, and the first one is this. First, in this text, we see Joseph's struggle with the miraculous conception. Joseph's struggle with the miraculous conception. Here at verse 18, after giving us the genealogy of Christ, the genealogy of Joseph that led to the birth of Christ, we see, verse 18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You know, throughout the Bible, we often see God calling his people to step out in faith and obey him in matters that are extreme, that are miraculous, and that are even unbelievable from a human perspective. He called Noah. God spoke to Noah, and he called Noah to build a giant ark in the middle of the wilderness. Who builds a giant boat in the middle of the wilderness? He called Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. He called Moses to go and challenge the most powerful ruler on earth. He called Joshua to march against fortified cities where the people of Israel were grossly outnumbered. God called Jonah to go alone and to preach repentance to the most vile and wicked and violent people of his day. And then we have the story that's here before us. Imagine being Joseph. Imagine that you've been looking forward your whole life to to falling in love and having a family. You're engaged now to a lovely young woman. You've followed the Lord all your life and you view this woman as a gift from God's hand to you. And you are so looking forward to being married and starting a family. And then this woman whom you have given your heart to and given your word to comes to you and says to you that she's pregnant. And you know it is not your child. Even more... She then tells you, but I haven't been unfaithful to you. I'm still a virgin. God is the father of my unborn child. You know, a man in that situation would take off so quickly, you'd see skid marks, right? We would not only think that this woman was an adulteress, we would think she's a crazy adulteress at that, right? Because after all, this is not how God works, is it? What would Joseph do? The text says that he was betrothed to Mary. The word betrothed is not a word that we use today. We, we speak of this time in, in our lives today as engaged, but it really was more than that at this time in the history of Israel. This word denotes a formal engagement that was a binding agreement that could only be ended through either death or divorce. 
It could last up to a year, and the marriage would then be completed when the man took the betrothed, his, his intended wife, into his home in a public marriage ceremony, and they consummated the marriage. So Joseph was betrothed to Mary, but as it says here, this was before they came together. Matthew uses this phrase intentionally to emphasize that their relationship had not yet become a formal marriage, and thus their relationship had also not been physically consummated. And yet Mary, see in the text, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is the agent of conception. We see this numerous places in the Bible. But Luke gives us a little more information. In his gospel, the angel Gabriel is the one who appeared to Mary and told her that she would be with child and that this child would be the promised Messiah. And Mary, in Luke 1.34, said to the angel Gabriel, How can this be, since I am still a virgin? And in verse 35, it says, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Now throughout Scripture, we see that God controls the opening and the closing of the womb. He opened the womb of Sarah and gave her Isaac when she was nearly 100 years old. He opened the womb of Manoah's barren wife and gave them Samson. The prophet Samuel was born to barren Hannah after God's intervention. And Elizabeth was blessed with John the Baptist late in life by God's design. But no one in Scripture other than Christ was ever born of a virgin. Why is this significant? I think Wayne Grudem gives us three brief and yet very poignant reasons as to why this is significant. First of all, it shows that salvation must ultimately come from the Lord. In Genesis 3.15, it was foretold that the seed of the woman would destroy, would crush the head of the serpent. God brought about this by His power and His design. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, that the second member of the Trinity, Christ, took on human flesh in this way, was part of God's purpose in redemption. And it is a reminder to us that salvation can never come through human effort. It must always be by God's design and purpose. Secondly, the virgin birth makes possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. This is what is referred to as the hypostatic union. Jesus is 100% man, 100% human, and 100% God, 100% divine. He was born of a human mother, yet conceived by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. And this was so that Jesus could represent both us to God and God to us. As the incarnate Lord, He is our perfect mediator. Thirdly, the virgin birth also makes possible or, or speaks to this, this reality that Jesus is not one who has inherited the sinful nature of Adam. And, and we want to be careful to understand this rightly. Mary was just as much a sinner as Joseph was. But the fact that he was divinely conceived by the Holy Spirit speaks further to the fact that he was not born a human being with inherited sin like all the rest of us. He was born holy. 
That's the significance of Jesus being born of a virgin. But that brings us back to the question of how would Joseph respond, right? What would he do? We'll look at verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Admittedly, Joseph was in a very difficult position. Being a just man, which means a law-abiding man, he had righteous moral standards. He could not, in his own conscience, continue on with a marriage to her. He had to assume that Mary had been with another man and that she was lying to him. However, Joseph was also compassionate. According to Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24, he had the right to demand her public stoning for her unchastity. However, by this time in Israel's history, divorce, according to Deuteronomy 24.1, was much more common. But a public trial for divorce would still have subjected Mary to open shame, ridicule, and disgrace. So in compassion for Mary, Joseph did not even want to disgrace her in this manner. Though he must have certainly been deeply wounded by her perceived transgression, he was not driven by any sense of revenge He was still concerned for her, likely because he loved her so much, which is why it says here he resolved to divorce her quietly. Jewish law permitted a private divorce conducted before two individuals, and no doubt Joseph would follow this allowance of the law to protect Mary as much as he could. People would eventually figure out the divorce when the marriage never materialized, but she would be preserved from open public disgrace. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to consider Joseph's actions here. Joseph, in this instant, is the embodiment of godly manhood in how he has responded to Mary's perceived adultery. Though he was facing an incredible struggle, he didn't react in the flesh. He reacted in the spirit. He sought to maintain his righteous standards, but he sought to do so in the most gracious way possible. He didn't even invoke what the law of God allowed in terms of having Mary stoned. He wanted to do the opposite. He wanted to preserve and protect her from as much shame and disgrace as possible. That in itself is a lesson to us, isn't it? Because, brothers and sisters, how do we tend to respond when we are deeply hurt? How do we tend to respond when we are betrayed? Well, we tend to be self-protective. We tend to be angry. We tend to be vengeful. When we are hurting, we want those who hurt us to hurt worse, don't we? And that results in us very often returning evil for evil. If we feel like we've been slighted, if we feel like we have somehow been prejudiced against, if we feel like we have somehow been neglected, we feel justified in our flesh to return the same behavior, don't we? We do this at work. We do it at school. We do it in our families. We do it in our marriages. If our spouse isn't meeting our needs, we withdraw. If our spouse has hurt us, we hurt them back. If someone isn't giving us the love that we we feel we deserve, then we withdraw our love from them. And it's a vicious cycle of our flesh. 
But Joseph, when he was hurt, when he felt betrayed by a woman to whom he'd given his heart and word, he did not respond in vengeance. He responded in mercy and love, just like Christ would. And that's really our example in everything. Isn't Christ our example in everything, brothers and sisters? When we know in our flesh our tendency to return evil for evil, we as believers in those moments when we are tempted to such evil need to return to set our gaze upon Christ. Christ never returned evil for evil. If Christ returned evil for evil, we would all be damned, wouldn't we? Christ is utterly patient and loving. In fact, Christ loves a bride who is adulterous every single day. And He loves us sacrificially. Christ is compassionate towards the sinner. Christ gives and gives and gives even when all we do is take and take and take. He never limits Himself to us. He always gives us the truth, but Christ gives us the truth in love to lead us, not to berate us or manipulate us, right? And again, that's the opposite of our flesh, right? Even when we're right, we feel the need to enforce our right. But Christ doesn't berate or manipulate or scorn He leads us with the truth in love. In short, brothers and sisters, He overflows to us with grace. And that's exactly what God would lead Joseph to understand. Let's go on to my second point. God's revelation of His divine Son. God's revelation of His divine Son. Pick up with me at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. So as Joseph was considering what he believed the most compassionate course, a quiet divorce, God intervened to preserve his relationship with Mary and to keep in place the earthly father that God had chosen for his beloved son, Jesus. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. God came with a specific revelation as Joseph slept. And in this dream, the angel confirmed what Mary, no doubt, had tried to tell Joseph. That the child conceived within her was of the Holy Spirit. It was not of man's seed in the earthly manner. Therefore, Joseph didn't need to be afraid that he was taking an unfaithful, unclean woman into his heart and home. Mary was indeed still a virgin, and she was a special vessel of God's will. God further revealed to Joseph that this child would be a boy and that he was to be named Jesus. And this was very important information because in Jewish culture, the father always chose the name of the children. It was his custom, it was a custom for the father to name every child. And Jesus is a form of the Hebrew word Joshua, which means Yahweh will save. There were other men named Jesus in that day and time, but Jesus Christ alone would be the one to actually fulfill what his name described. Yahweh's salvation. 
The angel enforces this fact by saying, look there, for he will save his people from their sins. Though Mary and Joseph could not fathom at this point the idea of their son being tortured and crucified and dying like a criminal on the cross, they certainly were told from the beginning that God's salvation was going to come through their boy. And Jesus was not coming to bring about an earthly salvation from oppressive governments and religious ideologies. He was coming to save his people from their sins. Brothers, sisters, as you hear these words, do you understand that? Do you understand that our greatest enemy is not a political ideology that is contrary to ours? Our greatest enemy is not all the bad things that are happening out there in this world, although there are many bad and evil things. Our greatest enemy is not the people who are closest to us that are hurting us. Sometimes we feel like even those we love are our enemy. No, for every single one of us, the greatest enemy is right here. It is us. It is our sin. It is our flesh. Our sin is the greatest enemy we will ever know. It is the greatest problem that mankind faces. And here is God promising to save us from our sins. This is the gospel proclaimed to Joseph and Mary before Jesus was ever born. We go on to verse 22 and we see the first of ten different formula quotations in the book of Matthew. And they're called this because there's the characteristic formula of mentioning a specific prophet and the fulfillment of what was written. This formula gives a simple, straightforward definition of biblical inspiration. Scripture is the recorded word of the Lord spoken by God through human instruments. God is the originator of biblical truth and the writers and preachers are just the means he uses to reveal his truth to his people. This is why Peter said in 2 Peter 1, verse 20, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is God's spoken and recorded word. So prophecies concerning the Messiah, made hundreds of years earlier, were being fulfilled in the manner in which Jesus came into the world. In verse 23, Matthew supports this by quoting from Isaiah 7, verse 14, a text that Pastor John English read for us earlier in the service. It says there, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. As a divinely inspired writer of Scripture, Matthew is rightly citing this verse as prophetic evidence that the Messiah would be born of a virgin in our midst as God with us. And that's what the name Emmanuel means, God with us. Brothers and sisters, the bigger picture we want to see here, though, is the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ here in Matthew 1, verse 23, we have the very first prophecy as it is ordered in the New Testament. This is the first of over 300 different prophecies concerning Jesus, and we will see many more of them fulfilled perfectly as we work our way through the stories of the Gospels. Indeed, this is one of Matthew's goals, to testify to the fact that God's eternal, sovereign plan of redemption was perfectly completed through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because it is this reality that changes everything. 
It is this reality that redefines our understanding of God and how we are to relate to him. And it certainly redefined Joseph's perspective. We're going to go on from and see from here that this brief revelation to Joseph in a dream completely changed his outlook and perspective and brought him to a new place in his own spiritual walk. That's what the gospel does for every one of us. If we are truly disciples of Christ, if we are truly saved, then we are going to be new creatures. We're going to walk in an entirely different manner of life because our life is no longer about me or us. It's no longer about what I want or what I seek to accomplish or what I desire. A life that has been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ is now entirely oriented around and upon the person of Jesus Christ. Not perfectly, brothers and sisters, but as a pattern of life, those who are in Christ love what Christ loves and hate what Christ hates. We savor and enjoy and relish the Word of God just as Christ did and does. We live our lives in His grace and strength and by His Spirit, knowing that we are forgiven, blood-bought heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that this is not our home, but that Christ Himself is preparing for us a place of glory that He too will bring us into. But having that life, having that hope, comes only through faith in Jesus You may believe that Jesus was a real historical figure. You may believe that the Bible speaks to real historical events. But if you are not looking to and believing in, trusting in Jesus Christ, in his person and work, if you are not understanding that what he did was done for you, then you are lost. You are apart from God. You are a child of wrath. And if you die in this state, you will be forever separated from God in an, eternal, in an eternal place known as hell. But this glory of the gospel is that Christ has come and done everything necessary to reconcile you to a holy God. It's not about your works. It's not about anything you can earn or accomplish. It is about placing your faith in the one who has accomplished your salvation it is believing in jesus christ alone for as he says in john 14 6 i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me this very day if you do not have the hope of christ know that his offer of salvation is made before you turn from your sin Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That takes us to my third and final point, our call to trust in Christ. Our call to trust in Christ. Pick up there with me at verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is a beautiful part of the story, right? If we put ourselves back in Joseph's shoes, 
One moment, Joseph was heartbroken. Joseph was feeling a sense of betrayal. Not only had this woman that he had pledged his life to seemingly betrayed him, now she was making up some story about being a, a, a virgin who was carrying the very Son of God. He was ready to divorce the woman he loved out of his sense of betrayal, but God intervened. God revealed his purpose. God reaffirmed what Mary had said, and everything changed. The rolling waves of hurt that were assaulting Joseph's very heart turned into a tide of joy. Joseph arose from his sleep and did just what the angel of God had commanded him. He followed through with his marriage to Mary. No doubt this decision cost him something in terms of his earthly reputation as a lawful or righteous man. By marrying this young pregnant girl, people would either have accused him of uniting himself with an unclean adulteress or of effectively admitting that he had fathered the child out of wedlock. Either way, Joseph went forward in obedience, not caring about the poor opinions of men, because he knew he was living according to the revealed will of God. He gladly took Mary as his wife, and he likewise protected her virginity until she gave birth to Jesus. And when the son was born, he exercised his traditional fatherly right by bestowing on the boy the name the angel revealed to him, Jesus. Now the word until in the first phrase of verse 25, is very important. Roman Catholics, in addition to the heresy that Mary was born a virgin, they believe that, although there's no biblical support to that. Roman Catholics also contend that Mary remained a virgin throughout the entirety of her life. But that's absolutely in contradiction of Scripture. The implication of the word until is that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph lived and loved and interacted physically just like any other married couple. In fact, later in the Gospels, we see numerous references to the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the natural children of Joseph and Mary. We see it in Matthew 12.46, 13.55, Mark 6.3, and numerous other places. So assigning those kind of divine traits, contending that Mary also had to be virgin-born, I, I still don't understand it in Roman Catholic dogma. If, if Mary had to be virgin-born in order for Christ to be virgin-born, well, why didn't Mary's mother have to be virgin-born? And why didn't her mother have to be virgin-born? I mean, it just goes on and on. It, it makes no sense. Assigning those kind of divine traits to Mary is neither biblical nor necessary. Christ is our Savior. There is no need of a co-redemptress in the plan of God. Mary was a godly young girl. Joseph was a godly young man. And God used them as special vessels to bring his son into the world and to raise him up as a man. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, Christ alone is our sinless, perfect sacrifice. Christ alone perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Christ alone willingly died on the cross of Calvary and rose on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father so that Christ alone is our eternal intercessor and mediator. We need no other mediator than Christ our King. Now as we wrap up the sermon, 
I think the first and the main thing I would want us to see, brothers and sisters, is that this passage is all about grace. It's all about grace. It is God's grace that He sent a divine Savior to rescue a sinful people. It is God's grace that out of all the other people in Israel, He chose Joseph and Mary to experience this special blessing and this unique burden. It is God's grace that Mary trusted in the Lord and obeyed Him and told Joseph the truth of what had happened. Joseph acted in grace in how he wanted to protect Mary, even as he followed what he believed was the righteous course. And it was grace that God revealed his plan to Joseph and preserved his union with Mary. It was grace that this young people walked together in obedience to the Lord, trusting in what was promised to them in their son, Jesus. Everything here testifies to the magnificence of our Lord's grace. We should pause as we consider these truths of the incarnation and ask ourselves, are our lives marked by this kind of grace and trust? When we feel in a place of deep struggle where we're trying to find the righteous way through, are we trusting in Him? And are we fountains of His grace? Even when we feel attacked or abandoned or set against, are we vessels of His mercy? Are we resting in the sovereignty of our God? Oh, brothers and sisters, that our lives would be marked by such grace. This is the obedience that Joseph and Mary manifested, and this is what we would strive for as well in Christ, right? John 15, verse 8 and following, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. May we love Christ and walk in a similar obedience in His grace, trusting in Him. And brothers and sisters, may we wonder again at the, at the beauty of the Incarnation. This again is a stunning story. We have a God who is all-powerful, a God who knows all things, a God who is all-present, and yet this God of gods did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied Himself taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess on heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know a God, we serve a God who keeps his promises. 
who lavishes us with love in salvation, who will never leave us nor forsake us, who gives us the very things we need, the very strength we require to follow Him in obedience because Jesus has accomplished all in all. May we be staggered again at the truth of His incarnation. Let us pray. Father God, You are so good. And Your truth, Lord, is so rich. Even though we are so familiar with these truths that we celebrate at this time of year, Lord, may we be struck again. May we be left in awe again at the God who would take on human flesh to fulfill the law that we had spurned, to die the death that we deserved, to rise again for our justification so that we could know eternal life. May all glory and praise and honor be to Christ our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.